This is Someone Like Me, the official podcast of End Slavery Tennessee. This show empowers survivors of domestic human trafficking and educates listeners, that's you, on what's really happening in their own backyards. I'm Leslie, your host. Today we have a special episode with myths busted by several staff members of End Slavery Tennessee. They each recorded their segments from their homes during quarantine in the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a strong group of staffers focused on trauma-informed care, education, and understanding the actual realities of human trafficking right here, serving survivors in Nashville, Tennessee. Please be warned, there's a fair amount of adult content in this episode, and as always, it's important to use discretion when listening. We don't recommend it for children, and please be aware that it may trigger some trauma. First, Let's welcome back our CEO, Margie Quinn. She brings over 25 years of law enforcement experience, and she's going to explain how police departments' perceptions have changed in recent years to recognize trafficking as a crime. Here's Margie. Prior to joining ESTN, I was a career law enforcement official. I spent 26 years in that profession, from patrol officer to assistant special agent in charge at the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. For the purpose of this podcast entry, I'm going to slide my law enforcement hat back on and talk a little bit about trafficking myths from that viewpoint. When I started in 1992 as a patrol officer for the Cobb County Police Department in Georgia, I went through months of training on things like sexual assault and domestic violence. You may remember the podcast episode number four addressing the intersection between these two crimes. I often refer to the training and law changes that occurred in the 1980s and 1990s regarding intimate partner violence and how that slowly changed the perceptions of violent behavior within families and living partners. Prior to those changes, domestic violence was deemed a family matter. Well, we all know that's patently false. It's a crime. All of the training around rape did not include the rape of a prostitute and certainly didn't include juveniles who were labeled at that time as prostitutes. When a prostitute called police to report rape, we would call that theft of services. In other words, if you were a prostitute, there was no such thing as rape. Further, there was a widespread belief that women engaged in the commercial sex industry had assumed the risk of rape by engaging in the air quotes profession. Again, patently false. The Trafficking for Victims Protection Act passed the United States Congress in 2000, but there was little understanding around human trafficking, except that which was accepted in third world countries. I was completely unaware of its passage, and it never made it into any training class I ever attended. I joined the TBI in 1998 as a special agent, and there was no training on the issue of trafficking until 2015. Dispelling all the myths around trafficking for law enforcement was a complex undertaking, that actually fell to me and the unit I supervised. I became aware of the issue and how it was impacting Tennessee around 2008-2009 when I supervised the Tennessee Missing Children's Clearinghouse and the Amber Alert Program. Some of Tennessee's missing kids were being trafficked. This was a total eye-opener. In order to understand trafficking, so much more must be taught and accepted as truths. Poverty, vulnerability, disproportionate impacts to minority communities, early childhood adverse experiences, and demand. As law enforcement is dominated by men, and men overwhelmingly perpetrate this crime, there is little wonder why it took so long to be recognized. As harsh as that sounds, it's just the truth. Having said that, when the training was rolled out and the issue fully explained, 
There was a dawning of recognition, and then law enforcement got busy. Do all police officers understand the complexity of trafficking? No, of course not. But the profession is well on the way to a broad understanding of how and why this is happening in our communities. Slowly, the criminal justice system is beginning to see trafficking victims for what they are, not criminals, but victims of a horrific crime. This new recognition can be seen in the state's latest data. Prostitution arrests are down 65% since 2014. That's a tremendous measure of the knowledge gained through training and education. I'll never forget going to moderate a focus group meeting in the state with officials who were going to weigh in on the issue of domestic minor human sex trafficking. And at the break, a police chief approached me and said, you know, back in the day, we used to just call that whoring. My reply was, not when they're 13, chief. Not when they're 13. He just nodded and walked away. That one statement really encapsulated all that law enforcement thought about women and children who were seen to engage willingly in commercial sex. And I don't exclude myself in that group. I don't know why we didn't understand the association between prostitution and human trafficking. You don't know what you don't know. But now we know. We'll now hear from Marissa Brownell, our specialist in commercial sexual exploitation of minors, or CSAM, to address the common myth that minors are typically kidnapped from their driveways by creepy people in white vans. I love working with the minor survivors here at End Slavery. Every day is so different, and the youth I work with are incredibly strong, resilient, and amazing people. The community is very supportive of our mission, and when I speak with people about what I do, I always get a lot of questions. Something I'm passionate about is informing people on what the reality of the commercial sexual exploitation of minors really looks like. So what do you think the most common misconception or myth is that people believe about minor survivors? From my experience, the most common myth is that these minors are kidnapped and forced into prostitution. I believe that because of the media and misinformation, many people think of big white vans, chains, cages, and things of that nature when it comes to minors being sex trafficked. So what does it really look like when a minor is trafficked? Well, the number one way I see youth get involved in being trafficked is through boyfriending. This is when a trafficker, aka pedophile, pimp, or exploiter manipulates their way into a vulnerable youth's life. They study them, ask them tons of questions to learn as much as they can about them in order to eventually control and manipulate them. So who do these predators most often prey upon, and how does this happen? Well, traffickers usually prey upon girls between 11 to 17 years old that have low self-esteem, no support system, and that are in vulnerable situations such as homelessness or living in a group home or foster home. The predator may be very sweet, loving and respectful at first, to lure the men and to build trust. Many buy the girls gifts, take them out to eat, pay for their hair and nails to get done, and they may even provide them shelter and some money so that they feel protected and cared for. But the most common threat of these quote-unquote boyfriends is that they manipulate the youth to feel loved and cared for, and then once they gain their trust, they flip the script. They most often tell the youth that they have helped them out so now they need to have their help because they desperately need money. They will guilt them and push them until they give in. 
It usually starts with, this will just be a one-time thing. But once a girl's manipulated into having sex for money once, the pimp will then really put the pressure on and their tactics change. And what does that look like? Well, this is usually where force and coercion come into play. The trafficker may become violent and demanding or threaten to publicly expose explicit videos or photos of them. At this point, when a girl resists working for a trafficker, they are often threatened, their loved ones' lives may be threatened, and violence and force may be used against them to get them to comply. Many of the youth that I work with do develop a loyalty to their trafficker, similar to Stockholm Syndrome or a domestic violence relationship. The majority of them don't see themselves as victims, and they often blame themselves for having sex for money in the first place. It can take a lot of explaining and reframing for them to understand that they truly were manipulated and coerced into that situation. Whenever I ask a survivor, did you want to have sex for money? Is this something that you really enjoyed and wanted to do? The answer is always no. No little girl dreams of selling herself in that way. No teens feel good about what they're doing. They may say they do, but at the heart of it, they're all very ashamed and damaged by this experience. To summarize a few points, one, a victim is usually in a very vulnerable situation in the first place, homeless, in an unsafe home, a runaway, or has already had multiple victimizations. Two, a victim is most often familiar with their trafficker, Commonly, it is somebody that they have an established relationship with, such as a boyfriend, like I mentioned, a family member, or a new friend that lures them in with promises of helping them. Number three, a victim is typically verbally, emotionally, and mentally coerced and manipulated into this situation. Force may be used as well, but generally not in the way the media portrays it, i.e. grabbed and tossed into a van or kidnapped off the street. Number four, Traffickers are usually patient, and they take time to groom a victim, build trust, find their vulnerabilities, and then exploit them. So, how can parents and caregivers reduce their child's risk of being trafficked? Here are a few helpful tips. Number one, teens are usually the most susceptible to being trafficked. So maintain open and honest conversations with your teens about trafficking, internet safety, and the red flags to look for in a predator and in an unhealthy relationship. Number two, know where your kids are and who they're hanging out with. This may be a given, but a lot of the teens that I work with have caregivers that are oblivious to who they are with or where they're at. Like previously mentioned, boyfriending is commonly used to gain a girl's trust, so monitor who she's dating. Traffickers also can use somebody's peers to target them as well. So meet and monitor your kids' friends too. And lastly, discuss online safety with your kids. This is currently the number one way that predators target young victims. Monitor their online habits often and take a look at several of the free or low-cost monitoring apps out there and use them. I do want to be clear that I am not saying that victims are absolutely never kidnapped. However, this is extremely rare. The average child or teen does not run a high risk for being trafficked. The average victim usually knows her trafficker and has not been kidnapped or forced into sexual exploitation, but instead has been controlled and manipulated. Hoping this sheds a little light on the reality of what the commercial sexual exploitation of minors most commonly looks like. Human trafficking is generally assumed to mean sex trafficking. 
But there's actually another type of trafficking as well. It's called labor trafficking. So here's Mary Beth Jensen, our labor and foreign victims specialist, to tell us more. When people think of human trafficking, usually they think of sex trafficking. And while that's a very common form of human trafficking, often unnoticed and unreported is labor trafficking. Yes, it very much happens here in the United States, and it definitely is not just foreign victims, and it is not just an agricultural field like most people think. One common form of labor trafficking that I've encountered while working at Enslavery is that of the door-to-door sales crews. They often are looking like a magazine subscription service or something, um, and victims are drawn in with promises of high pay, travel opportunities, room and board, usually... The victims that I've seen at least come from California. They're young adults who are maybe in a bad situation and this is like the opportunity for a new life or something. But once they're drawn in, their experience is hardly what they expected or were promised. Usually the employers are collecting most or all of the money that's earned, which makes the victims dependent on them for their food, for transportation, housing, and it also keeps them stuck as a part of that crew because they're not able to save any money for like their next steps to pursue any other opportunities and they're just stuck there with them. They usually make the sales quotas really high and the work expectations and the pay, if they get paid at all, is very minimal. And if a worker doesn't meet their quota for the day, they may restrict their food or they may be forced to work longer hours until they're able to make up all that money. They usually move the crews of victims from city to city and throughout different states constantly, which allows the traffickers some more freedom from some of the state employment laws. And it also makes it more difficult for the victims to reach out for help because they're in unfamiliar situations. They're not able to make connections with people. If a victim is finally able to get out from that situation and leave, they're simply abandoned in whatever city they're in and they have nowhere to stay, no money, and no way home. And that's usually when they call us. And now our community response specialist, Julia Rotuno, redefines ordinary and busts the myth that there's nothing an ordinary person can do to fight human trafficking. I love the word ordinary. Maybe that's not a very ordinary thing to say, but I really do love it. If you look into the meaning of the word, it comes from the Latin root for order, as in an order of events. An ordinary day has a routine to it. Mine used to be wake up, go to class, microwave my dinner, and go to bed. See, ordinary. It's about how we live our lives. When talking about the problem of human trafficking, there's this myth that there's nothing an ordinary person can do to help. You have to be a public defender, a criminal justice warrior, a Mother Teresa. You have to at least have your master's degree, right? I'm none of those things. I didn't even study social work. My degree is in marketing and I didn't understand what human trafficking was until I googled the term one day in college. That's how I found Enslavery Tennessee, and having little to offer but my willingness to help, I applied and became their marketing intern. The way I ordered my life then had nothing to do with helping others, and nothing to do with human trafficking, until I decided to act on my curiosity. Then something crazy happened. I learned more about the issue of trafficking in my state. I began to wonder what more I could do to help, and I ordered my life around this desire to stop the exploitation. And slavery Tennessee became a part of my ordinary life, and I'm still no criminal justice warrior. 
Maybe you aren't either, but you're also curious about this phrase, human trafficking. So many people want to help, but are paralyzed by this idea of being too ordinary. The joke is on us. We are ordinary, and that's exactly how we can help. By ordering our day, our week, our life around this mission to stop human trafficking. And there's so much we can do. Whether that is digging into more research on the issue, finding a local agency like End Slavery Tennessee to connect with and introduce yourself, sharing a post, volunteering for a few hours, donating to a needs list, or applying to be the marketing intern and one day finding yourself as an employee talking about human trafficking on a podcast. We all have skills, passions, and perspectives we can bring to this table, and perhaps what qualifies any of us the most is our humanness. The problem of human trafficking in Tennessee is too big to tackle alone. We need an army of ordinary people to get things done, to see this issue come to an end. The power lies in us to make a change in the way we order our days, and in doing so we may just make a change in a survivor's life. It all starts with making helping others, making end slavery Tennessee a part of your ordinary. And finally, on this myth-busting episode, we have Leah Moyer, our Director of Development. Leah explains how End Slavery Tennessee prioritizes survivor care and recovery as job number one. She also shares how a trauma-informed approach to care impacts even decisions about how to raise funds. So here's Leah. To be fully trauma-informed means End Slavery Tennessee must always put their survivor and their recovery first. Sure, sharing stories provides easy ways to educate the public, raise awareness, decrease myths, and raise funds, but we have to consider the ramifications. Should we do this when it likely and often does compromise the survivor's recovery process? Did you know that sharing a story, even with a survivor's permission, can further exploit them? It is important to educate survivors on the long-term potential consequences of sharing their story. Survivors might not fully think through what it means for their story to be out there forever, not only impacting their current relationships, but future ones. For one, sharing their story could compromise their safety and lead their abusers to their side for further manipulation and harm. It also can create shame, affect their employment or future employment, impact relationships with spouses, children, or the potential relationships they may have in the future. Not to mention retelling and revisiting their past without the control over who has access to their most intimate and personal experiences can be extremely triggering. And Slavery Tennessee will always prioritize the client over the ability to raise funds because survivors recovery, healing, and empowerment is the first and foremost priority. This is why we use pseudonyms or change details to keep identities confidential. We have to be careful not to further exploit a story for our benefit. Every person is different in how they heal and process their experience. Survivors can be impacted by all of these factors when they talk about their experiences. We try to educate survivors on the ramifications of sharing their story and they should have the opportunity to consider these and think ahead before doing so. They also should be compensated for their work and courage. We want them to be equipped to advocate for their worth. Sure, it would be easy to ask a survivor to share so that we can raise more money and we would be successful in raising more funds if we did that. 
but I want to challenge you to think about why In Slavery Tennessee has to maintain confidentiality and tread carefully when communicating survivor stories. These are real people's lives, and we do not want them to feel they are on display or the featured act in a circus at their expense. Know that we often do not share stories because of the negative effects it can have, but that doesn't mean those stories are not out there and real. The Someone Like Me podcast is a great step for us to safely share survivor stories in a trauma-informed way because people do need to hear from the survivor voice. Know that it was not easy for any survivor to share on this podcast, but they did so courageously to help educate people on the issue of human trafficking and prevent this from happening to others. We appreciate that you want to hear the stories of human trafficking straight from the survivors themselves. The best way to do that is to sign up for the podcast on our website and keep listening and learning. As we worked on this first season of Someone Like Me, it quickly became apparent how important a role education plays in the conversation of domestic human trafficking. It changes how we respond to things that flare up in the media, and it informs how we continue to work toward eradication of this crime. So stay tuned. There are even more myths that will be busted by In Slavery Tennessee staffers in a future episode. And Slavery Tennessee thanks Jones Legacy Group for their continued support and exclusive sponsorship of this first season of Someone Like Me. Executive producer is Derry Smith. Producer and editor is Gregory Byerline. Music by Kurt Goebel. If you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend and subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson. Thank you for listening.